Good evening. Turn over to the book of James. That's where we'll be. Get set up up here. So it's good to be here with all of you, as always, and to have another opportunity to preach God's Word. So like I said, we'll be returning to the book of James tonight. Um, It's been a few months since I introduced the book, and my intent is to continue working through it. So we do need to do a little bit of review just to get ourselves back into that context. So let's just read together, first of all, as we begin. Let's read verses 1 through 4. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I'll be reading out of the ESV. It says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So first, again, I want to review some of the stuff we went through Um, last time I preached. It was really just an intro to the whole book. And so right off the bat, this book of James is a letter. So we know it's a letter because the format that we find it in is a very well-known format for letters that were written in Greek. And honestly, it's not far off from the format that we even use now in English. Once we've identified something as a letter, the big question is always, who's it from? So right at the top of our letter, we're told that this letter is from James. James, it says. And while he does go on to describe himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, this description doesn't give us a lot to go on in terms of deciding which James is this, right? Which James is this? Well, we can say with the full weight and authority of Scripture that this book was written by someone named James, but determining which James this is, if we're honest, takes a bit more speculative means. There's room for disagreement. So last time I preached, I argued that this James is the son of Mary and Joseph, and that would make him the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the sake of time, I'm not going to review the entire basis for that conclusion tonight. If you're interested in that, you can listen to the last sermon off the website or just talk to me after this. And we know from a combination of scriptural as well as just historical resources that this James, this half-brother of the Lord Jesus— really came to faith in Christ after Christ's death and resurrection. We know, too, that this James rose to a position of prominence in the young church there at Jerusalem, that he really came to serve as an elder there. According to church historians, this James would eventually be martyred for his faith in Christ, as were many faithful men throughout history, of course. But again, James simply describes himself here as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one thing that James is often given flack for, especially as compared to other books in the Bible, is that there aren't many mentions of Christ, and there really aren't. But here, right up front, the core of James's identity is that he serves Jesus Christ right alongside God the Father. This is a way for James to really identify Christ as God by putting him on the same footing as God. And so with the author of this letter having been identified, the next matter, of course, is who's the audience, right? James writes the letter. Who does he write to? So in our case, we read this. Look down again at verse 1. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, the twelve tribes is a clear Jewish reference. It's a reference back to the twelve tribes of Israel. 
And the dispersion or the scattering, depending on the translation you have, was frequently used to refer to the lands outside of Israel. And so I'm fond of the suggestion put forward by Douglas Moo, he's a commentator, which is that the people James writes to, the audience of the letter, the original audience, are Jewish believers who at one time were part of his congregation there at Jerusalem, but who were subsequently scattered by the persecutions that came at that time. Okay, So that's what I take. So we have James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's writing to people who used to be a part of his congregation, but by way of various persecutions have now been scattered to other places. The theme that I put forward last time I preached is that of exhortation. Now, James is an infamously difficult book, both to outline and really to put a single theme down on. But I think there are two threads that, in my opinion, really seem to unite the entire letter. And it's really a theme more of tone rather than of topic. James covers a variety of topics. But the tone all throughout is that of loving command. Loving command. James is commanding his audience all throughout the letter. I think the frequency of commands is far and above any other book in the Bible. But as he does this, as he makes all of these various commands on his audience, he uses this address of my brothers or even my beloved brothers. So to prove this point, we need look no further than our verses for this morning. And so let's look at those again. And I think right up front, we're going to see this theme of exhortation begins in this book of James. So let's read together verses 2 through 4. And I'll just mention something real quick. I did this whole study using ESV. That's just what I read from. So that's often what I use to study, at least as an initial translation. Um, Once I had really finished this study and wrapped my head around what I think James is getting at, I actually think the NIV has the best rendering of this, um, bar one bit, which I'm just going to correct myself. But all modern English translations are very similar. And so the subtleties that I prefer, um, it's not going to mess up anything if you're using a different translation. So let me read this for you out of the NIV. It says this, starting in verse 2 of chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. And so what I want to do is I want to give you the bottom line for these verses right up front. Initially, I had gone through and was working kind of really methodically, right, verse by verse like we do. But I was really kind of worried that you didn't get to put it all together until the very end, right? And so I want to give you the conclusion right here at the beginning, and then I want to work through to actually get back to that conclusion at the end. So here it is. Here is the bottom line of these verses. James is calling us to an exalted view of trials, which is based on understanding them from the perspective of God himself. Okay, that's the bottom line. It is a perspective based on understanding the way that God uses trials in each of our lives. James says that trials are the means by which God purifies our faith. He says they are the means by which he strips off, you could say, anything earthly or temporal, anything which is not based on his truth. Trials are the means by which God burns off the chaff, so to speak, so that all that remains is pure, perfectly pure, eternal preciousness. What remains after God's work, by necessity, in fact, 
is that which is fit to last into eternity, forever thereafter. This really must be so, for this is the end that God has destined each of us who are in Christ for, right? Eternity with him. And trials are what God uses to first add the pieces which we are missing, and then to bring this whole work to a full maturity and completion within us. Trials really are the very means by which God forms in us the image of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. The very thing for which we who know him were predestined ever since before time began. It's like we've been studying in Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 29. Paul says this, For those whom he, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And trials are, in fact, the very way that God accomplishes this work within us. And so, bringing us to an understanding of this is James's true work that he does through these verses, okay? If this understanding is achieved, I honestly think the initial command that he leads with almost becomes entirely unnecessary. Here's what I mean. If we truly saw something, trials in this case, as the precise means that God is using to accomplish, literally, your full eternal destiny— then how can we see it as anything other than exactly this, as pure joy? So we realize that this command to consider trials as pure joy is not some sort of positive thinking ritual, okay? It is a call to see trials for what they truly are, and really to see them as tools by which God is forming Christ Jesus within us. So that's the conclusion, okay? Um, but obviously we've got some work to get up to that. And so let's, let's move on. Um, let me just give you the outline here. I'm going to use a six part outline. So they're going to be somewhat brief in terms of each part. First, we're going to discuss the audience or at least the way in which James addresses his audience. Second, we're going to examine the occasion or the circumstance which James is speaking to. Third, we'll consider the primary command that James is going to give his audience here. Fourth, we'll see the reason for the command. Fifth, we're going to get a warning that James gives. And finally, we'll explore the end result of all these things. So the abbreviated outline, then, is audience, occasion, command, reason, warning, result. Okay? So let me just open us in prayer here as we kind of start into the verses proper. Um, And I want to do so for a very specific purpose. So... The work that we have before us as we consider this text is spiritual work, right? And what I really mean is it is the Holy Spirit's work. If the Holy Spirit does not actively work through this time, then this time is absolutely wasted. What we need is for God, by his Spirit, to take these words and to apply them to each of our hearts, right? And that is something that only God can do. I can't do that. Um, so let's go before God together and ask you to pray with me and ask that he would bless this time in that way right now. And so let me do that. Let me lead us in prayer. Father God, God, we do thank you for this time, Lord. We thank you for your great and awesome word. God, I pray that you would work through this time. And God, I know that your word never returns void. I know that that's true. And so God, I pray that you would help me to faithfully proclaim this word that you've left us in James. God, I pray that you'd help each one in the room 
um, to understand it well, God, that you'd have each of us walk away with a greater understanding of the way that you use trials in our lives, God. And that because of that, that we would naturally see there's really no other choice than to count them as joy, God. And so, God, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this word. And I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, let's get started properly then. So, first of all, again, the audience. So, we're going to start with just those two words, my brothers. So, James uses this address or a similar form of it some 18 times throughout his letter. The first implication to see from it, again, is the tone that it gives to his command. This is a loving and familial way to address someone. It demonstrates a warmth and affection. And it's really important to keep that in mind as you work through the book of James, because again, he really moves quickly from one command to another. And the thing is, the source of James's various commands is not a desire to rule over or to assert himself or his position. No, these commands are given really in a context of pastoral care. James's desire is to keep his much-loved audience, his spiritual brothers and sisters, these people really who in all likelihood were probably part of his congregation, from falling into the pit of sin. His desire is to keep them on the path to righteousness and truth in Christ. And so that is the tone of the commands that James gives. And this really is the theme all the way from the beginning of the book to the end. If you look at the last verses of James, it says this, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And so James spends his letter lovingly guiding his readers away from sin and to truth and righteousness. That's really what he spends the entire letter doing. So there's one more implication of this address, though, of his address of my brothers, which we ought to keep in mind. While it is loving and affectionate, the address of my brothers is also exclusive. Now, I don't mean that it excludes sisters, so don't get hung up on that, right? That's merely a turn of speech that he specifically says brothers. But it is exclusive in the sense that not everyone is a part of this spiritual family that James is speaking to, okay? This exhortation, and really the vast majority of the book of James, if not the entirety of the letter, is only relevant for those who by faith are already a part of the body of Christ, who are already a part of the family of Christ. The Bible is not a self-help book intended to provide tips and tricks for life. If you have not repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then that is really the only message that the Bible has for you. To repent, to turn away from your sin, and to believe in Christ. In doing so, of course, we know, you're made into a brand new person from the inside out. And it is only these, only these who have been born again, who have been brought into the family of Christ, that James is speaking to here in our verses. It's really important to understand that if we're going to get the true sense of it. So then that's your audience, my brothers. Let's move on to the second part then. Having covered audience, let's talk about the occasion, okay? In the text, turn your eyes to when you meet trials of various kinds. This is the occasion. Let me point out, first of all, that the word used is when. When you meet trials of various kinds. He does not say if. And the implications of that, I assume, are obvious. 
The circumstance which James speaks to of trials is one which is absolutely inevitable. It is not simply probable or common. Rather, it is guaranteed when you meet trials of various kinds. And the idea is you will. Or better yet, honestly, you are meeting trials of various kinds. You see, the wording is left so open and the possible manifestations of these various trials is so broad that I think it is quite fair to say that literally every single person in this room right now is presently meeting trials of some sort in various ways and in various degrees. That we are each met with a trial of some kind even right now. And so this is a particularly relevant and a particularly timely address for all of us. So next, moving on from when, consider this word that is translated meet, or perhaps your Bible has it as encounter. So you see, it's interesting, while in English that seems like a very common word, the underlying Greek word here is actually used only two other times in Scripture. So it's a somewhat unique word. And both usages of it are very illuminating to the idea that he's going for. And so the first use is out of Luke. In Luke chapter 10, Luke is relating Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. The word is used to describe how the Good Samaritan fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So it's translated fell among there, as in fell among robbers. The second example of this word, or really the third, not counting James, is out of the book of Acts. So there the context is of Paul as a prisoner aboard a ship dealing with a dreadful storm at sea. The word there is used to describe how they were going along, being driven by the wind, when, striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. And so there it's translated striking, as in striking a reef. And so again, while it's only used three times in Scripture— I think we get a really great sense of what this word is conveying. So as with falling among robbers or striking a reef and being shipwrecked, so encountering or meeting trials is something that we do not seek and which comes upon us with a timing very much not our own. And so while this occasion of trials is first inevitable, right? We got that from when. The second thing to notice is that it's very much out of our control, that there's no need to seek trials, that you will meet them quite against your will, and really with no regard for what you would prefer as far as timing goes, right? At least humanly speaking. And so, still on this topic of occasion then, still in the second part of the outline, let's consider now that particular phrase, um, trials of various kinds. So when you meet trials of various kinds. So again, while the wording here is quite open-ended, I do think for the sake of just good Bible study principles, we should consider the original context first, right? And so again, these were former members of James's congregation in Jerusalem. They've been scattered from their homes, scattered from their homeland, and driven elsewhere by persecution. We're getting that partly from how James addresses them as in the dispersion, but also just from the historical context when people frequently date this letter. So that's where that's coming from. And so these people that James is writing to, they're outside of their familiar context, away from the land of their ancestors, away from everything they'd grown up with, and even still, consider what James writes to them, James 2.6, 
Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And so really it seems that this harassment, this persecution, apparently by wealthy and influential people, had continued even then. That it was a present thing. That even as they had fled from their homes, they were still going through this. Um, And so they still faced this persecution. But again, once more, I am of the opinion that James does not intend to limit the application of the prescription that he gives here. He says trials of various kinds. He does not say those trials that you're going through right now, those particular ones. He says trials of various kinds. And so we have to ask, what could this include? Um, I do think it'd be impossible, obviously, to enumerate all the possibilities of this, but I think it's going to be helpful just to bring to mind um, several of the things that this could include, okay? So let me just rattle some off for you. So first, this could include failings of health. That could be sickness. That could be a light sickness, or it could be a severe sickness. It could be temporary, or it could be chronic. This could include injuries. Sometimes we heal from these entirely, and sometimes these can plague us for quite a while. This could include economic struggles. Sometimes we lack sufficient money to meet our expenses. And on the other side of it, sometimes we're stressed out not knowing how to properly manage what God has given us. This could include relationship troubles. And honestly, these manifest anywhere that you interact with another person. That could be at work. That could be with your children, with your parents, with your brothers and sisters, with spouses, with boyfriends and girlfriends. All of these relationships can bring with them trials. It could be that as our bodies fail, and I already mentioned sickness and injuries, but honestly, our minds and emotions are often affected as well. That could be feelings of dread or anxiety. That could be depression. That could be a sense of being overwhelmed. It could be an insecurity about some personal shortcoming. It could be a boredness just with a lack of excitement in life. And then beyond all these things, there's death itself, which is honestly a trial all of its own. We lose people that we love. Um, We face our own deaths. There's the pain of unmet goals and desires. That could be in relationships, in ministry, in the workplace. Um, We fail in various ways, sometimes spectacular ways. Uh, We set out to do things, and we don't do them. We face confusing and impossible circumstances. We make plans, sometimes big, sometimes small, that don't come to be for reasons often outside of our control. We lack enough time to get done the things we need to get done. We lack enough energy to do those things even when we have the time to do them. And often, even when we have the energy and the time, we lack the resources. And certainly, not least of all, as is the context of the people James writes to, there is guaranteed persecution for our faith. And so all of this is given just to broaden your view of trials of various kinds. So don't get hung up on any one example that I gave, because the reality is the trials of this life in this world are as various as the sin that plagues it, right? That's the truth. So some trials come and they linger for days, months, or even years. Some happen over a course of literally seconds, minutes, or hours. And honestly, more often than not, we're usually dealing with some combination of these things. They rarely come just one at a time. And so, it is from a position of great love and affection, as James addresses again his audience as brothers, He has an exhortation regarding this very timely, very relevant thing. 
these, very, these various trials, which without ever seeking, we are bound to encounter, you're bound to encounter at a time you wouldn't choose, and you're honestly bound to encounter a variety of them at once. And so let's continue on now then to this command. So we've considered the audience, the occasion, and now let's look at the command proper. James says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And so in the Greek text, and also in the ESV, and honestly in a lot of other English translations, this command is truly the first word in the verse. It is given the priority. It's really abrupt, honestly. It is the first thing that James says after greetings. Unlike Paul and Peter, who often have very somewhat flowery introductions, James goes immediately into command, right? It's greetings, and then it's count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So he's really uh, excited to get to this, I guess you could say. And so the command itself is this word which is translated as count, consider, or esteem. It is what you make of something. It's what you do with it mentally, so to speak. I thought it was interesting that when used in a literal sense, the underlying Greek word here means to lead or go before, to command with official authority was the idea. And when used figuratively as it is here, that's when we get it as consider or esteem. And so I think keeping the literal idea in mind, it's like we're to, cha- we're to take charge and to view something in a certain light, from a certain perspective. We're to give command in that way. So the idea is not to pretend that something is a certain way when it isn't. That is not what we're being called to here. We're not being called to pretend or to make believe. The idea, rather, is to choose to focus on a particular perspective, a particular aspect. So it's a call to focus on a particular set of truths about something, okay? We're not making this up. Another thing for you is that this is a command that happens in the mind, You can obey or disobey this command without moving. To go further, I would say that every single person in the room right now is literally, presently, either obeying or disobeying this command. You are either presently taking the perspective that James has commanded you to take on trials, or you aren't. And so this is an extremely relevant, a very timely command for all of us. And so now let's be clear what it is. So when James says to count it all joy, what is it? So because the command has an object, right? This is important. You can't simply consider. You can't simply esteem. I can't just say consider. You must consider something, right? There must be an object of your estimation. And so what is the object in view here? Because this is really important to get settled. When James says consider it, what is he referring to? Well, he's referring to the occasion, which we already discussed at length. But again, listen clearly. He's referring to the occasion. And so why is this important? What is the difference between the testing of your faith versus, so that first, that'd be the occasion, right? The testing of your faith versus the test itself. You see, the test itself, the trial itself, may in fact be a direct result of sin. It may be death. It may be sickness. It may be bankruptcy. But James is not zeroed in onto these things themselves, okay? You need to zoom out to, again, what I'm calling the occasion as a whole. 
Let me give you an example. Let's use surgery as an example, okay? The occasion of a surgery. So in that analogy, James is not zoomed in to the knife cutting into the person, okay? You need to zoom out to the surgeon who is holding the knife in the beneficial purpose that he is accomplishing by that surgery for that particular person that he's operating on at that very moment. So do you see what I'm getting at? The occasion of the trial, the way I'm using it, contains a lot more than the trial itself. It includes, in fact, the one who is ruling over and using that trial and also the end, the specific end, that he is accomplishing through doing so for that particular individual who is encountering that particular trial. Okay? So count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He is not saying to count various trials a particular way. Rather, it is the occasion of our meeting them. And again, this pulls in crucial context that we're going to need if we're going to obey this command, if we're going to take the perspective that James is calling us to. It's not a call to view particular means of trial a certain way. It is something much, much bigger than that. And so as we consider our meeting with various trials, we are commanded, not simply suggested, to count it as pure joy, pure joy, unmixed joy, untainted joy. And now there's a question that comes up when you're considering that as a phrase. The question is this. Is this a reference, when we're talking about the joy, primarily to the degree, the magnitude, the weight, you could say, of the joy? Or is this intended to speak more to the exclusiveness? Okay? Let me say it another way. Is James commanding that we consider our meeting trials to be great joy or that we consider it to be joy and nothing else? So here's how I will answer that. First, I think the idea is primarily that of degree, okay? James is not trying to say here that you should not be grieved when a loved one dies, that you should not be heartbroken when a child abandons Christ. No, this is not joy to the exclusion of grief and sorrow. We know this can't be what it's saying for one reason, because Jesus himself is described in Isaiah 53 as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And in fact, we know from our recent studies of the story of Lazarus um, in the book of John that when Lazarus died and Jesus arrived at the funeral, he did not say, cheer up everybody, stop with your crying, stop with your grieving, have a good joyful laugh. No, rather Jesus wept there with them, both of his own grief and of an empathy for those who were grieving. And this is good. This is appropriate. So it's primarily a matter of degree, not a matter of exclusivity. Pure joy. Great joy. But here's the thing. I have said that the word all or pure, depending what you have there, that it's primarily about degree. It's not meant to exclude. And I I think that's true. But I think there's an analogy that can be helpful here. Consider you have a flashlight. And you're inside in the dark and you have your flashlight. Um, And how's about you're rummaging around inside a basement, right? There's no windows. It's dark. You've got your flashlight. And I give you a command. I say, come outside into the sunlight. Because let's just imagine in our scenario, it's the middle of the afternoon. No clouds. Very sunny outside. So you come outside. You bring your flashlight with you. And what happens? Well, you can no longer really see the light from your flashlight. 
I did not tell you to turn it off. You did not turn it off. It is still on very much. But here's the thing. The sunlight is so bright that it has overpowered your little flashlight to the point where it may as well have been turned off. And honestly, I do think that is an aspect of what's going on here. I do think we are called to such a perspective on trials that as we obey this command, I do think the joy begins to rightly overpower other perspectives. Now, again, it doesn't entirely exclude those perspectives, grief, frustration, sadness, but I do think rightly it begins to displace them. It begins to overpower them. And I think we have a strong biblical precedent for this idea, and I'll show you. So first, if you look at Hebrews, and you can turn there if you want. We don't have to. I'm going to move kind of quick. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It says this, looking to Jesus, good example, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. So Jesus did not pretend that the cross itself was a joy. The cross itself brought with it shame. It was a real difficult trial, one which Jesus even prayed that God would remove if possible. But the joy set before Christ, the joy which he had and which he saw through his obedient relationship to God the Father, that joy overpowered any other perspective. And like it said, he for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. And so Paul speaks of such things as well. Consider Romans chapter 8 again, verse 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That this glory so outmatches the present suffering that it really begins to dwarf it entirely. He says something similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 there. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so it is not that the suffering, the affliction, the trial, the test of our faith, it's not that those are not there, nor that we are called to pretend they are not there. We don't need to exclude these things. But the idea is that if we choose to obey the command that James has given, this perspective he commands us to take, then the joy will begin to overpower whatever else is there. But let's move on. Because I think at this point, the command, honestly, maybe rightly even, seems kind of impossible. The idea of just doing it, just just do it, just count it joy, um, that really would be kind of to pretend something that you don't actually believe. And that is not at all what James is commanding us to do. Because James is going to give us the reason for the command, the grounds for it. James is going to show us why this call is not a call to make believe. Rather, when we see the truth that James presents, we realize that we truly must do as he says. That truly, there is no other option than to, with him, see trials as joy. And so, we've considered the audience, um, the occasion, the command, and now let's consider the reason. And let's see if we can make some sense of how this can all be so. The reason. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
So first, James says this is really something you already know. That by experience, you have come to know already, in part, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The testing of your faith, it's a reference to the trials of various kinds, right? Two sides of the same coin. But this testing of your faith brings in some really important context now. This word that is translated as testing, again, another example where it seems like a very common English word. If you search in the English Bible, I'm sure you get plenty of hits on testing. This Greek word, though, is only used in one other place in the Bible, and it's used in 1 Peter. And 1 Peter writes this in chapter 1, verse 6. 1 Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness, there's our word, of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so in the context of this Peter passage, we can see more clearly that this word for testing is related to the way that a precious metal like gold or silver is tested, or perhaps better yet, proved in the furnace. And this is a very, very important realization about what's going on here. And to be clear, it's not just Peter who tells us this. We have at least one other clue telling us that's what this word is getting at. Um, The Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, there in Proverbs 27, verse 21, we read this. The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, and a man is tested by his praise. And there, tested is the same word we're dealing with. And so this really is the mental image that James intends to call to mind as he gives us the reason, the basis, upon which we are to consider our trials as pure joy. It is this mental image of a furnace by which precious metals are proven or purified. Now, there's an important transition that has happened. Because in verse 2, we were very much focused on the human side of trial, okay? And that makes sense, honestly. Because in verse 2, James is giving us our marching orders, our command, right? We're to do something. We're to take a certain perspective. We're to count it as joy. Um, In verse 2, trials were met, we said, in the same way that you'd meet a robber or that you'd become shipwrecked. It's not something that you'd seek out. It's out of your control. From your perspective, honestly, it's almost random. But with verse 3 now, we've shifted to an entirely different perspective. And this is very important if we are to see trials as joy, that we shift our perspective with James. I think this is the key to the whole puzzle. Because here's what you need to understand. When you are dealing with precious metals, they do not just end up in the furnace. That does not happen randomly. There is only, literally only, one way that silver or gold ends up in the furnace. The only way that this can happen is if the blacksmith picks up that particular piece of gold or silver and places it in the furnace himself. Do you see how important this is? We are to count our trials as pure joy because though from our perspective they may seem um, random or unfortunate or bad timing in the way that we meet them, the reality is that there is a greater perspective beyond that, and that it is God's perspective. And that from God's perspective, God really has carefully picked us up 
and placed us into the furnace himself. That God really is the one who has done that. And of course, it's worth asking, is God good at what he does? And the answer is yes. The answer is that God is the very best at what he does. That he keeps the furnace at exactly the temperature that it needs to be. And that sometimes that is very, very hot. But sometimes it is not. But it is done with perfect precision. Because you see, God makes no mistakes. God doesn't do anything on accident. God doesn't do anything random. And so it is no accident. It is, in fact, done by God. And there's another implication here I want to point out. Because I think when we read this word testing, still on this word testing, it can be easy to see it as some sort of like 50-50 situation, okay? As in the idea is that God were trying to determine whether something was false or genuine. But I am convinced, for a couple reasons, that that is not what James has in mind. He's not speaking about, let's find out if this is genuine or not, because first of all, he speaks with words of inevitability. Look, he says, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. If this were a test that you could fail, then there would be no guaranteed result. It would be entirely possible that rather than producing steadfastness, you just get burned to nothing. But James, again, this is why the whole audience is so important, is dealing with saved individuals. As we mentioned in the address of my brothers, James is writing to believers, and he makes that clear all throughout his letter. And so the idea here is not of determining genuineness. Rather, it is of proving, proving a present genuineness. And I think it's fair to even think of it as purifying something that already exists, but it's not yet perfectly pure. And so through this furnace of trial, the parts of our faith, which are impure, which are not based on truth or not focused on God, these are shown to be false and are burned off. And what remains is that God-given, precious, eternal, immovable, unshakable steadfastness of faith. And so, this production of steadfastness is the next very important implication here. Again, God has not done this by accident. He has, of course, done so with a purpose. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Um, some translations have that as perseverance. It's, a, it's an unshakableness. It's a permanence. That's the word that stood out to me. God uses trials to purify our faith, and that which remains is of eternal stock. It's completely immovable. It's permanence, in fact, based on Peter's similar usage of that word testing, makes earthly gold look as if it were grass or straw by comparison. Peter said this. He said that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says that that which comes out of God's furnace will last until the revelation of Jesus Christ, at which point it will be the cause of great praise and glory into the rest of eternity. It's that permanent. It's that eternal. And so, as if this were not enough, as if this were not enough for us to consider trial a joy, this realization that God is the one who is expertly using these trials to purify our faith, to remove all that is temporary, to make it fit for eternity, James has a little bit more still to say as we move towards close here. 
So we've considered audience, occasion, command, reason, and now we have the warning. And let steadfastness, he says, this is verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so I got to go to the Greek again to point something out here. Because the thing is, that word let is not there in the Greek, okay? And let me tell you why that matters. So this is one of those cases where the setup is something that we do not have a direct equivalent for in English. Because here's what's happening. You see, James is obviously speaking to those whom he's writing to, right? But the command in the Greek is actually directed to steadfastness itself. It's a third-person command, and we don't have a concept of that. I can command you in the second person, right? But I can't really command myself. That doesn't really make any sense. And I can't really command they, right? The third person. So we don't really have a concept of this. So it's a challenge to translate. And so in most translations, you kind of get what we have there. And let steadfastness have its full effect. And read this way, the idea is that we have a personal responsibility to allow steadfastness to do its work that we must not always be resisting the work that God is doing in us through trials. And that's why I labeled this section warning. James is warning us that we must not resist God. We need to let steadfastness have its full effect. But honestly, in terms of understanding this, I think an even better way of looking at it is that steadfastness must have its full effect, where the primary emphasis is not as much that you need to let it do so, but rather that it simply must do so. Again, the command is directed to steadfastness, but he's communicating this to his reader. He is telling us, telling them, that which steadfastness must do. And the reason that steadfastness must have its full effect is what follows here into our last bit, which is the result. It must have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. This is a really strong statement. And I think taken in a certain simplistic way, it'd almost be easy to think that James is endorsing some sort of sinless perfectionism, as if to say that the end result of trials in this life is that you would be wholly without sin. But that is not the case. So let's just start by ruling that out. James is well aware of the reality of sin For as long as we are on this side of heaven, I think the clearest example from his letter is probably chapter 3, verse 2. There James writes, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. And so this is not an expectation of sinlessness, but this is a very, very strong statement, even still, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This right here is the work that God is ultimately accomplishing in us through the trials that he brings into our life to prove out our faith. This is the end game that the master blacksmith, again, God himself, is working us towards as he expertly uses the heat of his furnace, okay? And those two words, perfect and complete, that really feel like exact synonyms in English, I think, they're really bringing two very different um, 
contributions to the table, okay? Even lacking in nothing, right? It feels like a negative just restatement of what he already said. But perfect and complete really are two distinct truths. So I have to tell you about those. So first, perfect. The Greek word behind it is teleos. Its root word, telos, means end, goal, purpose, or aim. So then this word teleos has to do with something that has reached its end, goal, purpose, or gain, or aim. We can almost think of it like the concept of maturity, right? It is something which is mature. It has reached to its end. And that's how the NIV translated it, and I liked that. Consider a human person. They're truly a person from the moment that they're born, and we know that they're just as much a person when they're born as when they're a full-grown adult, but we also know that there's a difference between the two. There's a difference between a newborn baby and a full-grown adult. And it's this, it's their degree of maturity. It's the degree to which they've physically reached the goal. And that's this idea of teleos. It's something which has been brought to maturity. Okay, so that's the first word. But then we have this other word behind complete here. And the word behind complete is holakleros. And this is different. This is the idea of something which retains all that was initially allotted to it, or more simply, that has all of its parts, has about. To use the idea of a physical body again, this would be like saying that a person has all of their limbs, all of the parts. And honestly, the example of a body really can help us distinguish between these two somewhat morbidly. Bear with me. Because, for example, someone could be teleos, as in physically mature, a full-grown adult, and yet not holakleros, not complete. They could be missing a limb. They could be missing an appendage. And likewise, on the other side of it, a newborn baby might be holakleros, has all the parts, has all the pieces, right? But is not teleos. So we see that these are two um, related but distinct concepts. And here, James says that the result of perseverance, which again is wrought in trials by God, is the combination of these two things. Perfect and complete. Mature and whole. And again, he tops it off with lacking in nothing, in case he missed something. There is no lack in either degree nor in presence. No lack in either breadth, as in like out, right, or depth, like deep. And you may rightly ask, I think, what are these parts? What are these parts then that God is bringing together, that he's ripening to their full maturity? Um, And James doesn't really answer this. All we know is that it's something that has to do with us, that God is doing. He says that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I think Paul gives us a great answer in Galatians. Paul says, referring to the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. I think this is a good sampling of the things that God works in us and subsequently matures in us by way of trials. And truly, again, to bring it back to what I presented at the beginning, there is no greater depiction of Christ himself than to say all of these things wholly brought together and brought to their full maturity. And so really, again, it is the image of Christ that God is working in us through trials. That's what he's really doing. And so let's bring this all together again, um, and let's conclude. This is a really big statement, 
the scope in these verses is honestly enormous. I think we truly have only scratched the surface with the time that we spent so far tonight. Let me just read our verses again. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James has a loving command, again. My brothers, he says. This is from a position of great love and affection. He needs to address something which he knows is inevitable in this world of sin. He says, when you meet trials of various kinds. The command is that we would see these trials properly when we encounter them. The command, again, is that we would count it all joy. And this is not a command to make believe something which were not true. We need to consider trials as the joy which they truly are. This consideration is only possible when we see them from heaven's perspective, when we see them from God's perspective. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. God uses trials to prove out our faith, to burn off the bits that are not of eternal quality. And what remains after trial is is this permanent settledness, this great steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And with with that bit, I, I think James honestly cannot find the words to explain what he's going after. I think as you dig into those words, you almost sense a desperation with having to use human language to even communicate this concept. It's too big. It's too grand. He says that God is using trials first to remove the stuff that shouldn't be there, then to add the stuff that should be there, and then to bring the whole thing to a full maturity with nothing lacking in the end at all. This is fullness upon fullness upon fullness. This is completeness of completeness. This is nothing missing, no absolutely nothing. And this is the great work, again, which God performs in us through trials. And in a word, it is Christ. It is Christ himself. It is Christ that God is forming in us through trials. Because who else could we say comes to mind when you consider the finished work, fully mature, lacking nothing? That's Christ. And that he is who God is working in us, who God is forming in us, through the furnace of trials. That is how big this is. That trials are the very tool by which God forms Christ Jesus, his son, the image of his son, within us. And it is only when we see trials this way that we can agree with James and count it pure joy. When we realize that God is using trials to form this image of Christ within us, to form us into the image of Christ, who is perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So when we realize this, when we realize that our trials are really accomplishing our very eternal destiny, that in God's hands they are doing nothing less than literally that, I think it is then and only then that we can consider it pure joy when we face trials of various kinds, because only then do we see that this truly is so. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Father God, God, you are great. Lord, you are 
so much greater than we are, God, infinitely greater. God, I thank you so much for your word, God. Thank you for letting us see behind the scenes, so to speak. You're under no obligation to do so, God. You could have left us in verse 2, so to speak. You could let us only see trials as random, as unfortunate, as terrible. And you could still rightly command us to view them however you would have us view them, God. But you don't do that. God, you're so gracious that you reveal to us what is really going on behind trials. You reveal to us, God, that it is by trials that you are stripping off the parts that are not eternal, the bits that are not meant to last into the destiny that you've called us to, God. And you use trials to do that. You use trials to add what's missing and to bring the whole thing to an awesome and full maturity, God. I thank you for this revelation, Lord. I pray that you'd help each of us, God, to not be content to just view trials the way that our emotions would tell us to, the way that the world would tell us to. No, that we wouldn't cheat ourselves, Lord, of this great eternal perspective that you had given us, that this is really what trials are, and that when seen thus, God, we agree that there really is no option other than to see them as pure joy, as great joy. So, God, I thank you for this time, and I pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.